The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you all bow with me again in prayer this morning? Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, it's my prayer that you would sanctify us, even as Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we need to be grounded in your word. We need to be guided by your word. And so I pray that you would send your spirit to work in us and among us so that you might work through us, ground us, and guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat if you would. Crack your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12. We'll start with a question for the kiddos this morning. What's at the center of pride? What's at the center of pride? Anyone? Any kiddos? Benjamin? Sin. That's right. And what's at the center of sin? (laughs) The big kid in the middle knows it. (laughs) (laughs) Riker, did you have your hand up? No? Don't overthink this one. Travis? I. There you go. I. I is literally at the center of pride. I is literally at the center of sin. I. But also, figuratively... Is it not? I is at the center of pride. Pride is centered on self. It relies on self. It's concerned about self. And pride will ultimately end with self. A life lived in pride. And while we might recognize pride is sinful... Benjamin, you were right. Sin is at the center of pride. We found all sorts of ways to dress pride up, to disguise it. In some ways, even to make it look like it is something noble, to make it look like it's something desirable, appealing and attractive. I'm sure that We have all recently seen displays of pride, displays of self, displays of being concerned about self, of being centered on self. I'm going to get mine while I still can. I would say if you've been to any grocery stores lately, you've probably seen examples of that. 
In our passage this morning, we see the sin of pride. And we see it dressed up in religious robes. That is, the people of the, the Sadducees. These Sadducees, they, they give this impression of true religion about being about something that's great, about something that's grand, but really all the while they're only concerned with self. With these Sadducees, they appear very religious and they were, so far as ritual was concerned, but ritual is not true religion. It is not religion in the right sense of the word. Their religion was in vain because their religion was entirely centered on themselves. And so, with themselves, their religion would end. There was no hope for them beyond this life. There was no power beyond what they could muscle out for themselves. But we see them this morning come face to face with Jesus. We see them challenged by Jesus. We see them exposed by Jesus. They intend to make Jesus look silly. But instead, they are the ones that are ashamed And we see this morning where it is that these Sadducees went wrong and what led to this pride. And in this passage, I think there are great admonitions for us. There's great instruction for us, great warnings, a timely message for us that we would not do like they do. So look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. We read there, Mark records for us, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Quite the introduction. This is the Sadducees. What do we want to know about the Sadducees? They believe there is no resurrection. These different groups have been coming to Jesus. They are asking him questions. They are trying to trap him, to trip him up, somehow to get him to stumble. But every time they are the ones that stumble, every time they are the ones that go away as fools, And so now the Sadducees come to him. We don't read much about the Sadducees in Mark's gospel. But even though we don't see much of them in Mark's gospel, their influence is very much present. You see, the Sadducees, they were very influential in Jerusalem. They were very influential, especially in the sphere of the temple, 
in the area of the temple. We often associate them with the Pharisees. As you read the Gospels, you might even read the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so we tend to kind of clump them together and say, well, they're really similar. I want you to understand this morning that they're not. They're not similar. The only thing that they seem to have in common was that they hated Jesus and they wanted to destroy him. That was the common bond for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where the Sadducees exercised their control within the confines of the temple. The Pharisees were more out and among the people on a practical level, helping people, trying to help people live according to the law. We know that their help was really not help because they just made laws upon laws upon laws for the people. The Sadducees differed in their view of Scripture. They held to the first five books of Moses. They accepted the Torah and either rejected or they did not give the same weight to the rest of Scripture. And the Pharisees accepted it all, as well as the oral law. And, as Mark notes here, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. You die, that's it. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They debated it. They talked about it. They considered what it would be like. The Sadducees simply dismissed it. And so these Sadducees seize upon this opportunity in this series of questions as people are coming to Jesus, hoping to trap him in his words, hoping to stumble him with a question. Ha, it's our turn. And boy, have we got a whopper for Jesus. Listen to this question. Verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is Leverate Marriage, Deuteronomy 25. You can go back and listen to that sermon when we went through the book of Deuteronomy. If a man dies, no heir, then the brother is to take that widow now, make her his wife, and then the firstborn would would be the heir to the dead brother. Well, verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Are you tracking? This is an extreme case. Not just one brother, two brothers, three brothers. All seven. 
No offspring. And then the woman dies. Verse 23, and here's their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And they think, ha, we've got him. I have to imagine that this was the Sadducees' ace in the whole question. When they start debating with the Pharisees and they want to make the Pharisees look foolish, this is the question that they pull out. Oh yeah, well what about this situation? What about this story or scenario? Whether it's real or manufactured really doesn't even matter. But they pose this question. So whose wife will she be? Because the seven had her as wife. They show in this a prideful ignorance. They show a prideful ignorance. They came to Jesus thinking that they already knew the answer. They had been able to stump the Pharisees time and time again with this question. You see, the Pharisees believed that the resurrected state was basically a continuation of what we know now and are familiar with, that marriage would continue even after resurrection. And so for the Pharisees, this would stump them. This would cause them to stumble. Uh, How do we answer? Any way that they answer, the Sadducees are able to make the Pharisees look like fools, So for the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, but who believed wrongly, this created a real dilemma. They wouldn't know how to answer. They wouldn't have a good answer. And this is what the Sadducees are attempting to accomplish with Jesus. They want to expose him as a fraud. They want to make him look like a fool. They want to discredit Jesus. They weren't really hoping to learn from him. That wasn't the intent behind their question. So Jesus responds. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I hope you can appreciate just how quickly this changes. The Sadducees come and they ask this question and they're hoping that they'll find Jesus maybe fidgeting nervously, maybe biting his nails, trying to come up with an answer. What should I say? Boy, this is, this is a toughie. This is a good one, a zinger. What will I say? How will I answer? But Jesus doesn't even give them an answer immediately. Is this not the reason you are wrong? You're wrong. Your question isn't even any good. You know so little. 
You are so distorted. You are so caught up in your pride that you can't even ask a good question. Jesus doesn't tremble. He doesn't even legitimize their question with an attempt to answer it right away. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong. And for the Sadducees, they were dead wrong. You are wrong. He says how that it is that they're wrong. Two things generally. First, because you know neither the scriptures, and secondly, nor the power of God. You're wrong about the resurrection. You're wrong about the basis for your question because you don't know the scriptures and because you don't know the power of God. Imagine how this would have landed on the ears of the Sadducees. This was like the religious aristocracy. These were those with authority. These were those with power. These were those that were well-respected. They controlled the goings-on on the Temple Mount. They were the conservatives, the ultra-conservatives, where the Pharisees were maybe more liberal in what they accepted and in what they taught. No, the Sadducees were a very tight circle. And Jesus comes and says, you don't even know Scripture. And you don't even know the power of God. This would be like an unknown street evangelist who goes to a faculty meeting at a well-known and a rigorous seminary and tells the professor they don't know anything about their Bibles. Who are you to say we don't know our Bibles? The Sadducees would have been those that committed their lives to knowing the Torah, to knowing Scripture. But they didn't. It was believed that if anyone knew anything about the scriptures, it was the Sadducees. But Jesus says, you know not the scriptures. Now, put yourself up against a Sadducee. With all that they would have known about scripture, and about what you know about Scripture. And get those Bible trivia cards out and start going through and asking those questions. I would say, for most of us, maybe all of us, we wouldn't stand a chance against the Sadducees when it came to Bible trivia. They knew it. They'd been taught from childhood, they had committed years, countless hours to knowing Scripture, 
but they didn't know Scripture. Yes, they may have been able to fire off correct answers to Bible trivia, And I'm not saying there's a problem with that, but what I am saying is that doesn't go far enough. It's not about just knowing answers to events and places and names to be able to give the address in the Bible for where a certain story takes place. Those things are all well and good, and I hope and I pray that as a church we know our Bibles well, that we're familiar with the stories and the accounts but that we don't stop there. The Sadducees stopped there. And it was familiarity with the Bible. It was observation at distance of Scripture. It was not a real and genuine knowledge that then led from observation to be able to rightly interpret Scripture and then also to be able to rightly apply Scripture. It was just a general, shallow observation. No, they hadn't gone beyond that to be able to spend time in meditation on Scripture. No, that wasn't explored And that is what we need, church. I hope that we spend enough time in God's word, that we're familiar with it, that we know it, that we can even get familiar enough with our Bibles that we might know that that story, that account. It's on the right-hand column, on the the left-hand page in the book of Acts that we would know it so well, that we would spend so much time getting familiar with it, but that we would go beyond that as well so that we spend time in Scripture so that Scripture truly and really gets into us so that we would be able to make deeper observations than just being able to list off names tell stories and accounts, but know that as we meditate upon Scripture, that we would be able to go into an interpretation of Scripture, not just what does it say, right? That's that's the, the general observation. What does it say? This person did this at this time with these people, and that was the result. Observation. Great. That's Bible trivia, But then you get to the next question. What does it mean? What does it mean? I know that this is what took place, but why did God inspire the writer to record this for that original audience? What does it mean? What did it mean for that original recipient? that original audience, that original church, whatever the recipient of that book or that letter might have been, what does it mean? And then to move from there to an application, and why? Why does it matter? How does it apply to me? What does this require of me today? And those were the kinds of questions, frankly, I I think the Sadducees just didn't ask. 
The who, the what, the where, the when, they were good at that. They knew those. But the how and the why, they didn't venture into those waters. And so Jesus tells them, you're wrong. You're wrong even with your question. You can't even ask a good question because you don't know the scriptures. Church, we need to do our very best to be right handlers of God's word. This is what Paul writes to Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best. What kinds of things do you give your best to? kinds of things do you think, I, I want to give it my all. I'm not going to hold back. Handling God's word, do we take it that seriously? Do we work at it, a worker who has no need to be ashamed? A worker putting energy, putting their strength behind this, mental fortitude, Rightly handling the word of truth. This is what we need, church. That we might know scripture, not just be vaguely familiar with it, but that it might get into us. That it might be lived out from us. The Sadducees were removed from it. When Jesus says, you are wrong, is this not the reason you are wrong? The word for wrong, we get our word planet from that Greek word wrong. You're out there. Is this not the reason you're, you're wrong? You are, you are detached. You are so far separated. You're out there in orbit. But you are not touching reality at this point in time. Is this not the reason you are wrong? And when we leave off God's word... God's word is truth. That's what happens. We, we're out there. But that wasn't their only problem. And Jesus gives us their second problem. You also do not know the power of God. Jesus had been speaking about his being raised from the dead. He had been speaking about his resurrection. And the Sadducees knew it. And they thought they could trip Jesus up with a question about the resurrection. They don't know God's power. You can write these down, but I want to read them for you to give you some instances of where we read about God's power 
in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus was raised by God's power and he will raise us up by his power. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, we read there, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the powerful working of God to raise Jesus up and through faith will raise us up as well. God displays his power in raising us up, in raising Jesus up, in the resurrection. One more, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The immeasurable Greatness of his power? You don't even have a measuring device big enough to measure the greatness of God's power according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. And this is the same power that is at work to raise us up in Christ. The Sadducees didn't know the promise of God. That is, they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the power of God. And church, I'm convinced that now, especially in times like now that we're living in, that we need to be reminded of God's power. For the Sadducees, this is how it played out. They were upset with Jesus because he was threatening their position. If people are believing Jesus, if people are following Jesus, then we're going to lose our position because our teachings are so very different. And so what do we do? We need to destroy him. We need to figure out a way to take him down because he is opposing us. And so in the same way, it's the thinking for those who have hope only in this life. Like the Sadducees, no resurrection, no hope beyond this life. I need to get all that I can while I can. I need to make sure that I get mine Those who don't know the power of God, those who don't recognize the resurrection, it becomes all about the here and the now and this life. Church, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
And I want to read this for you as well. Starting in verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Here, the church in Thessalonica, they were, they were grieving. They were troubled. They were in times of trial and tribulation and They were starting to go the way of the world. And Paul reminds them, no, 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 church, dear Christian, saints, remember. We don't grieve as others who have no hope. When times of trial and tribulation come, we don't respond with with fear. We don't react like those who have no hope. We don't respond like those who have no hope. Rather, we believe that the dead in Christ will be raised and will be forever with the Lord so we can encourage one another, serve and support and help, church. We're called to something greater than what we see taking place in our world right now. And the the Sadducees, they were all about the here and the now, and there's no life after, so we need to protect our position, and we need to take care of ourselves. And Jesus says, you're wrong, because you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. And for those of us that do, we need to remember God's power, not be like the Sadducees. Not make it all about this life and getting as much as we can for ourselves in this life to be those who are generous, not greedy, not stockpiling for ourselves. We're called to serve, not to wait for others to come and to serve us. We're called to sacrifice not to do everything that we can possibly do to preserve our earthly life, but to be those who give. Church, this is, this is the legacy of the Christian faith through the ages. It's one that we're called on to continue. This is what, what started in Antioch when, when the city there, the people of that city said, How do we categorize them? They don't fit into this group or that group. They come from all different demographics, but but they're crossing boundaries and borders and they're, they're going into places of need. What's the one common thing that 
these people have who keep going and helping? Christ. Christ is what they have in common. I guess that's what we need to call them, Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because what other label are you going to give them? They're living their lives like Christ. They're going to those in need. They're serving. They're sacrificing. Not going the other way. Not walling themselves in. Not trying to barricade themselves. But in times of trial, tragedy, tribulation, when when there's fear, The believers go in and they make a difference. And it's a gospel difference. It is being Christ to them. There's a world that's living in fear. There's a world that's taking humanistic actions to try and preserve life. Yeah, there's, there's wisdom. Use hand sanitizer. There's wisdom, certainly, But I've heard stories of people going in bunkers until this passes over. Is that what we're called to do as Christians? I don't believe so. But if you don't know God's power, that's the best you've got. And this life is all that you've got. So you better try to save it. You better try to preserve it. But church, this is a time for us to pray and to think and to speak and to act in a way that is distinctly Christian. The Sadducees did not know the scriptures, did not know the power of God, and so they were in opposition to Jesus because they were trying to protect what they had because this life is all that they knew But we know there is hope beyond the grave. And so we don't fear, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. No, we are to encourage one another and to stir one another up to love and to good works. And this is one of the ways that we portray Christ to a lost and a hurting and a fearful and a dying world. And Jesus continues with these Sadducees. He's not done with them yet. Verse 25, when they rise from the dead, not if, but when the resurrection is fact, it's determined in the plan of God, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Don't take this too far. Doesn't mean that we're going to be somehow changed into angels after the resurrection. But to the extent that angels are not married or given in marriage, so will be for us as well in the resurrection. And as for the dead being raised, verse 26, have you not read in the book of Moses In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus directs them to Exodus chapter three. Remember I said earlier, the Sadducees 
What, what did they receive as the canon of Scripture, the first five books? And so he takes them to what they accepted, takes them directly to Moses, in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. And God speaks these words to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died, yes, God is still present tense their God. God did not say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. No, I am their God. This speaks to the hope beyond life that death does not end it, that God continues to be their God because they pass from life to life. And the God who made these great promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob during their lives will continue to be faithful to them even after death. I am their God. There are no shortage of passages that speak toward the resurrection. Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, was taken up to be with the Lord. He walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Abraham even. Have you ever noticed in Genesis 22 when he is going to Mount Moriah to worship and the servants say, or no, Abraham says to the servants, we are going to worship. And will come again to you. Abraham had a resurrection hope. He knew I'm going up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. But we will come back to worship you. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And Jesus ends his answer to them, the Sadducees, in verse 27, again affirming, you are quite wrong. You are much like those planets far, far away. They were wrong about the resurrection. And so also they were wrong about Jesus. The Sadducees, they had, they had their religion. But their religion was not according to Scripture. They had their religion, but their religion did not recognize God's power. There is life in Him. We're exhorted in Scripture to leave off pride and to humble ourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt us, and He will lift you up. 
I is at the center of pride. And the Sadducees were all caught up in themselves, all worried about what they could get in this life now. And even when real life was right in front of them, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, they didn't recognize him. They didn't humble themselves. Church, we're called to be those of humility, recognizing the power of God, submitting to the promises of God revealed to us in Scripture. And He will lift us up to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, it has been my prayer and continues to be my prayer that you would ground us, uh, ground us and guide us in your truth. We thank you for your word that even in the events of this last week, though that is not all of our life, but certainly has garnered quite a bit of attention. And your word speaks to us where we are. And it meets us there. And it instructs us and it guides us. And it leads us forth in hope and as people of peace. And Father, I pray for Pillar Bible Fellowship that now especially in this time, even as Seth was leading us this morning in our confession of sin, that we are a church that wants to grow in evangelism, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would continue to work and to to labor at it, and that even now, especially in this time, that we would give careful consideration to how we might be used in the lives of our community members, and our neighbors, our coworkers, that through our actions and by our words, that the gospel would be known, that it would be put on display in beautiful ways, and that we would live lives that are distinctly Christian that we would be known as a people of peace, that we would be known as a people of hope, and that we, Father, would be those who boldly share that hope that is within us. That you would work through that in such a way that those who hear would come to faith and come to true life. Continue to guard us and protect us. Lord, not even necessarily from a virus, but guard us and protect us from wrongful thinking, from disbelief, from straying away from your word, 
and responding in natural ways that are contrary to you, reacting in such a way that we would do shame to the gospel, bring shame to the gospel. Father, we want the name of Jesus to be exalted, and especially in a time when there is such need being made known and needs being expressed. Father, we know that Jesus is the greatest answer that we can bring. Strengthen us. Encourage us, Lord. Give us courage and boldness that we might be able to proclaim your name, to do your work, and to bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.